Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to On the Birds. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. We are here to recap day two of the 2022 MLB draft, and we'll have a deep dive into the players that the Orioles took on Monday, which included rounds three through ten. But first, we're going to bring in a guest to help us break down the early part of the draft. He is the author of Maximizing Playoff Odds, a Baltimore Orioles newsletter, which is available through Substack. His work also appears in the 2022 Baseball America Prospect Handbook. He is John Mioli. John, how are you? I'm doing well. That was a long night last night. I'm sure you guys felt the same, but uh, but, but we're hanging in, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we were live for all five straight hours or so. And, uh, yeah, I guess with the Orioles winning ways, maximizing playoff odds is uh, looking like a better and better name for your newsletter. Yeah, right. You're right. I didn't even think they'd have playoff odds this year. Like, we got so used to them not having any. It's 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 very precious. If 1.8% counts, we'll take it. Jump in here with the first pick, which was Jackson Holiday. How quickly did Holiday sell the Orioles front office on him as a possible 1 1 pick? Because it sounds like, from what has been said since yesterday, this was not someone who was really on their radar for that first pick going back to prior to the 20, you know, prior to the high school and college seasons. Yeah. Yeah. So this is definitely different than I think last year is, you know, the player they took their first pick was part of them, their, their winter draft meetings. Now those are all just planning purposes, getting their coverage ready, kind of figuring out where resources are going to be allocated. But the Orioles truthfully saw what the rest of the industry saw that, that Jackson holiday had bulked up a ton, uh, that the ball was coming off the bat a little more. He was, you know, he was a lot stronger than he was in the summer. And Brad Selick said last year that that was really, you know, when they left the summer showcase circuit, that the whole organization was kind of read that has great play, just great barrel control, but we really, really want to see him get stronger. And once he did, I think he shot himself into condition. And, and as you're looking at things that the Orioles have, you know, focused on in the draft these last couple of years, um, and I think you saw that to an extent today's pick, seen it, Certainly in 2020, when they only had like three of the games to go off of last year, they don't really want who the best player, um, you know, in the draft or best players considered, you know, from the previous summer were. They want the guys who are the best in the spring they're taking. Um, and I think Jackson Holiday really, really fit that. Um, I don't think that in, in – um, I don't think that in January he would have been, you know, the pick. But you're not drafting in January. You're drafting in July now. He had a really good high school season. He showed everything the Orioles wanted to see, and 
and we're very comfortable making this pick uh, and, and paying full boat for it, it seems. If only the Orioles had experience developing left-handed hitting high school shortstops with nice flowing blonde locks. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I think, you know, truthfully, I think that, you know, and I don't know if that was an actual, uh, I, don't, I, I, that was kind of what I was thinking about even before we spoke to Brad is that they really like just the types of players that they seem to like, you know, they're so proud of them for, for, for helping Gunnar head to the point Gunnar Henderson's done a lot of this work, you know, for health, but the Orioles feel really good about, you know, their role and what they've been able to do to help that along. I think that they see, I think that they see a lot of that potential in holiday right down to the bulking up in the, in the winter before his draft. And I think that really, really, um, you know, I think there's a lot of evidence that they can, they can do the things they do in the draft. I'm curious if do you think if if they would have went Brooks Lee, I think that was the pick a lot of fans were kind of anxiously hoping that it wasn't going to be Brooks Lee with all these high school towns available. Uh, do you think if they would have went Brooks Lee, though, like would that have been telling fans something different about where this rebuild is going or? Um, I, I don't. So the more, you know, I spent a lot, you know, I didn't spend a ton of time like coming into this weekend, like, you know, parsing reports but as you read them i was reading a lot of them over the weekend kind of make sure i was going to be ready to write stuff and you read about it and it's you're reading these brooks lee reports and it's all these stuff that they love such you know more walks and strikeouts you know got the power potential he's getting better every he's a premium position he's getting stronger like man this is the type of player going to take i don't know if it would have sent a message about um I don't think it would have sent you about where this is going. I think it would have just sent a message that like, this is what we do. You know, we have college hitters. They're going to be in the big leagues, you know, in pandemic circumstances in two years. Um, and they will keep getting here and we're going to keep doing a good job. But, but the difference between, you know, drafting a really, you know, steady Eddie, you know, in the lineup every day, batting in the middle of the order, you know, college out. And, or infielder and drafting a, like a high school stop who can already hit and has the play discipline and stuff you want. I think that the upside is just so high that they need to, they need to, um, you know, take advantage when they have, they're not picking and hopefully for a long time. So this is the type of pick where you say, okay, this is what we're doing. You know, one crack to really get this thing over the top. We hit this. We are going to be a very, very good team when it gets to the big leagues. And I think that's a chance that they were just willing to take. Yeah, that sounds right to me. And even with their second pick, Dylan Beavers, he was a guy that seemed like could have gone late in the first round as well. Uh, that is more of a Orioles pick, right? A college bat that uh, a little more experience, but young for a college guy. I feel like he's doesn't turn 21 until next month, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Kind of a mix between Colton Cowser and Kyle Stowers. If you just look at the way they play, got the power, but can maybe play center field. Um, just need a, a little bit of hit tool work, which I feel like the Orioles have shown that they're capable of working with these guys on and improving a little bit. So what do you think of Beavers with the that first extra pick that they had, the comp C or whatever it was? <laughs> I don't know which one. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The, the second pick is what we'll call it. <laughs> I think that, you know, and, and, and I that, you know, the way that Felix spoke about him, you know, I'm telling on myself a little bit. I wrote most of what I wrote last night before we talked to him uh, because we mm-hmm. talked to him at like 1230. It was pretty, uh, I'm an old dad now, uh, not a cool dad like Matt Holiday, just an old dad. So, uh, <laughs> so, I, so 
but but hearing everything you're saying about about Dylan Beavers, you know, you're hearing about you're hearing like the Kyle Stowers like development story, somebody who who you know doesn't chase a lot but has a swing and miss in the zone that's like easily correctable and already has present power and has really tapped into his his strength yet. Kyle Stowers went home during the pandemic and got a lot stronger and hit. 30 last year. I mean, the type of thing that happens, focusing on those exact same things, getting stronger, uh, making more contact in the zone, not mitching those pitches that are over the plate, those mistakes. These are things that the Orioles know how to teach. They know how to develop those things. And we're talking about somebody who, you know, essentially had as many home runs in the last couple of college seasons as Kyle Stapp did in his entire college career. Like, uh, give or take one. Like this is somebody who already has the potential to do all these things and has shown to it in a, in a real league. The Orioles are kind of transposing these, you know, these archetypes, these development plans that they already have in place for these types of players and saying, okay, we know that a player with X skill and Y skill and A deficiency and, and, and B deficiency, this is how you do it. This is how you help them get better. This is how you address those. Obviously, it comes down to the player. I'm sure they did a ton of work on whether he's willing to do that to, to make that happen. But you're not asking someone to believe in someone that something that doesn't. It has worked. Um, you know, you can see you can see examples of it across the clubhouse in minor league spring training if you really wanted to. And I think that's going to be really meaningful as they kind of try to. Um, you know, sooner or later, there's going to be guys you know who are this front office who are these draft guys at every position in the big leagues. It's not going to be long um, before all these positions are taken. And it's going to be help these players who are in the lower levels of the system entering through the draft to know that, hey, you know, if I do X, Y, and Z, that can be me. Because otherwise they could be a little, they could be a little, um, you know, probably a little discouraged by what they're seeing. I, I think the Jackson Holiday probably likes the fact that there's a Gunnar Henderson up. I'm sure, given what we know about Gunnar Henderson, he probably likes that there's a Jackson Holiday because you say, oh, this guy doing here? I'm going to be the shortstop. He gets here, and I'm going to stay here. So it's just a dynamic I think they're fostering. And I think I think having someone like Beavers who they know how to work with is going to be really interesting. Seems like in a similar mold, you have Judd Fabian there as a power-hitting college outfielder with strikeout concerns. You wrote a little bit about Fabian in your article this morning. He was an Orioles target last year. He went back to Florida and actually improved in some areas this year or so. How happy do you think the Orioles were that he was available to them with that fourth pick? Probably pretty happy. Um, I, I, one of those things where, where as it's happening, you're like, you know, and I think this draft more than most, I think that if you were, you know, you're sitting in like the late 20s and you're looking at like what kind of college hitters are available for when the Orioles are going to pick next and you're looking through the reports, you go, oh, this Dylan Beaver seems like, he, he's going to be the pick here. And it's the same thing as the Orioles are going to their last pick. You look at Judd Fabian, you're like, yeah, that makes a little sense. I don't know if they like elevated him up their board. I don't think they do. I don't think they really do that. I think it was just, he was the top guy when they picked. I'm sure they feel good about um, the amount they're going to sign him for this year compared to what was bandied about last year. So that's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I just, that I just think that ultimately, you know, in the same way that they like to see players, you know, who have had struggles get better. This is a player who was, you know, had a pretty high pedigree who went out there and got better. If I, I will, I would say, you know, if we're talking about February, 2021, Judd Fabian is in the mix for the Orioles first pick um, fifth overall. This is a player who is 
who they did talk about in their winter meeting uh, about their top pick, I'm sure a lot and put in a lot of work in and obviously it wasn't there. He just didn't have a good season last year. Uh, the Orioles liked him enough where they, they were pretty keen on getting him in the, in there with one of their later picks. It didn't work out, but I don't think it really changes the player that they got. I think that if anything, having him go back to school, play in a really tough conference, um, probably helps his case. Now he would be in Bowie with, you know, Colton Kowser and Connor Norby and Kobe Mayo. And, you know, he would be leading that kind of draft draft class already and he'd be in Bowie and that would be good. But, but he's a year more developed. He has a year of working on things that the Orioles probably would have wanted him to work on anyways. And I'm sure he can move just as quickly as he did. So I'm sure they're thrilled by it. Um, I, I, I feel like there's a little more like coincidence to it than, than we are, uh, than, than, than uh, everyone kind of, understanding that one of them last year would allow, but, but it is a good chance. I think. Yeah. It's almost like Florida became an affiliate of the Orioles for a season because <laughs> he went and all you hear about now is he's got the best swing decisions in college and he got his walks way up. His strikeouts came down a tiny bit and the defense in center field is obviously legit, but I do wonder if he'll, if they'll move him a little bit faster now that he got that extra year in college. I wonder if he's going to be like, the first one promoted out of this crop of, of the college hitters, at least when uh, this year or next year comes along. You, you would think so. I think they pretty well have this, uh, you know, I, I think that everyone's trajectory to a certain extent is kind of, is kind of it at this point, you know, these guys are going to sign. They're going to go to Florida for a couple of weeks. What was it like the third week in August last year that, that, the, that everyone came up to Delmarva. I'm sure that's going to happen again. I'm sure everyone is going to start in Maine and they're going to get 200, 250 plate appearances. And then they're up. Um, I, I don't think that there's really, I don't think that there's really a lot of ambiguity about this. Now, could he go faster? You know, potentially Cesar Prieto, you know, obviously had an accelerator in mind. If a guy is really too old for the level and not really challenged there, they'll move him. But, but, I, I think that they have a good kind of system for this. You know, they know where the challenges are in the minors and they know for these college players they're picking, it's not really going to be in Delmarva and it might not be in Aberdeen. So you might as well get them through that as quick as possible, but he could easily, you know, be one of those fast moving types. Yeah. Just more of my thinking was like when the Kyle Stowers, Johnny Riser, Zach Watson group came in all together, it was like, Oh, Johnny Riser is going to be the guy that gets promoted two weeks before the other ones do. Okay. That's interesting. So that's more <laughs> that, that's, yeah. 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 Yeah, but another power hitter they got, it's which seems to be a theme of what they like, is these guys with some pretty good raw power that can translate into game power. Max Wagner, and again, another guy who younger side of things for a college hitter and just like having a breakout season, they like want to grab these guys just like Reed Trimble last year, grab them before they can either go back to college for one more year and increase their stock even more or get them into their development system as early as possible. But what do you think of this third baseman? And seems like he's got real powers. Again, just going to be a matter of how much the hit tool stands up. Yeah. I, I, I think that, I think that it's really interesting how have um, gone about these draft eligible sophomores kind of, and, and kind of like targeted this little area. It's a group of players that wouldn't have been available in different drafts. Um, a group of players that be, um, you know, would probably be really, really high picks here uh, if they performed the way that they did as sophomores. And I think that the Orioles prioritize that is kind of just trying to get ahead of the game a little bit. I know they they believe that players, you know, the younger you are, the more you can develop. So 
a year of development, you know, kind of contrary to what we just said about Judd Fabian, but I think this, the, the opposite is true. A year of development in the Oreo system with their hands on you in their mind is, is probably better than anything else. It's not to say that the alternative are bad. It's just that they want these, uh, I think that they want these players to be, you know, doing what they want to be doing and doing it every single day. And this is a player who's going to get to do it. Uh, Brad Selig said last night that they like how, you know, he had a tough go as, as a freshman. He wasn't even, you know, a starter at the beginning of this season. He was coming as a defensive replacement and then finally cracks the lineup and, you know, hits 27 bombs. So so he, he's been through, you know, he's been through struggle before. He knows how to handle it. He's had to kind of pull himself out of that. And I think the Orioles like that. And, again, they like players who, you know, are the best players in the years that they're drafted. They didn't, you know, they didn't stack their board in February. They stacked it probably last week. So when you look at somebody who has the talent and the production and age on his side, the way that the way that this player does, you're 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 doing yourself a disservice if you're like, well, it's only one season. Like, yeah, well, you know, if you draw if you draft somebody who had a good summer last year and struggled this year, it's only one season too. You want to pick the most one season, and that's what they did. So I think that I, I think that there's I think that there's a potential for something like really unique in the power hitting sense to happen here. Um, the Orioles do draft raw power to an extent, but I don't know that they've drafted this kind of it before. Um, you know, a from like, especially from the right side and say, Hey, you know what? We just move that wall back. Like however many feet and we don't care because this guy's going to hit anyways. Like I'm fascinated to see how this plays out. Love it. Um, just kind of generally speaking about day two today. I don't know how much you've been able to dive in yet, but you know, they did take, Five pitchers today, uh, even though the one of them is going to hit as well. Uh, so Elias had to kind of ease his way into there to, you know, grab yeah. the full on pitchers. But um, yeah, what is this kind of a lot? If you look at a lot of these guys, too, I think they really match up just from what I've read initially. That matches up to what you've said, where, you know, by the end of the year, these guys were coming on strong. And based on some comments that I read you know, early on in the year last winter, a lot of guys are like, uh, you know, this pitch isn't that good. This pitch isn't that good. You know, this isn't working for them right now. But by the end of the year, like Trace Bright and some of these other guys they took early on, the comments are super positive. And you hear a lot of this projection and what they can become if they're in the right organization. Uh, what have you seen just speaking with a lot of these, you know, minor league coaches, the pitching coaches, and just the organizational philosophy as a whole? What are you seeing down there in, in the lower level, specifically the minor leagues that, is really showing us that this organization can take these lesser known pitching prospects, maybe from smaller schools and turn them into, you're just an arm Brewsters, you're no Denoyers. These guys are having success in double A already. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know, I took a break from, from writing the story specifically to talk to you guys. Uh, it's, 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 so it's all fresh in my mind. I think that this is like, I, 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 in a way I'm glad that they took these pitchers because I think that it finally, you know, we're not talking about like, you know, taking a picture with one, one. we're talking about like doing anything crazy and like changing your program. They're just, they just, what they did today is they continued to do what they've done the last couple of years, just with, with higher draft picks, you know, it's a collaborative effort. The pitching coaches who are going to be working with these guys, the complex at the affiliates are working with the scouting analysts, working with the scouts and identifying, you know, the traits that they like about them and how, and, and game planning, how they're going to make them better. You guys hear it. Um, you know, you've had pitching coaches and people involved in the organization on before. Um, I, I am now becoming a bad interviewer because anytime I talk to someone and they're talking about their fastball and somebody says, oh, they have a hot 
hoppy fastball. I'm like, well, I know that. Like, they're they're an Orioles pitcher. Of course, they have a hoppy fastball at this point. Um, they don't really go for anything else. But you're looking for hoppy fastballs. You're looking for you know a weapon that's going to work against the righty. You know, a weapon that's going to work against the lefty. You're working. Um, you're working specifically to an attack for each side. You are. Um, you are probably on the bigger side, not like hefty, but like you're probably tall. You probably generate really good attack angle. I saw, gosh, I wish I remember his name. I was sitting in my office today and there was like thousands and thousands of words about college re- relievers on this newsletter that I found. And they were talking about the Oklahoma State pitcher. What's his name? I can't remember. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to him. <laughs> but but the, the pitcher that they took with their first uh, pitcher pick about how, you know, he doesn't have like elite hop on his fastball, but because he's so short, the, the attack angle is still good. And he has a sweepy slider. And I'm just like, check, 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 check. These are the things that the Orioles look for. These are the things that the Orioles want their pitchers to be able to do. They know how to work with these types of pitchers. They have a plan improving them. They have a plan for bringing them along through the minors and, you know, going from more like Delmarva where you just to be able to hit fastball to somewhere like Aberdeen where you need to have a plan to both sides, somewhere like Boo, you need all your pitches working. Norfolk will be ready for the show. They have specific plans. They have really, really thought out methods. Um, and I think, I think honestly, one of the most significant traits of this is that everyone's on board, you know. When the Orioles did draft a lot of pitchers, define an Orioles pitcher by – you know, putting them in a large bucket that says, you know, one in scouting likes me and, and, and someone in baseball, you know, and player development hates me. Like there was no there was synergy was going on in, in any way, shape or form. These if you're a pitching coach, your job is to make everyone better as it is. But if you scouted these people, if you said, I like the way that this fastball moves, I think we can, you know, I think ditch his two seamer and we can. We can focus in on him throwing a more slider and teach him a splitter and we can do X, Y, and Z. And I will be the one that does this. There's a lot of conviction there. And the player is going to believe in that because he's going to know that you wanted him in the organization and players who aren't going to have a chance elsewhere um, are going to be able to, are going to be able to thrive and become prospects and get on the radar. Now you're not, you don't need to say that about like a third round pick. You say that about a 13th round pick, but I think that, this draft is about the Orioles kind of taking what they've shown that they can do well and know they can do and kind of like turning the volume up and turning the stakes up and saying, okay, we did this, you know, at level one, like what if we do it at level two and three and four? And I think that's really happening on the pitching side here. And I think it's really cool. So John, before we let you go, I want to circle back to Jackson holiday because one of the questions that we've gotten a lot is, you know, what is the ETA? And obviously there's a lot of things we don't know that can influence the ETA, but do you have a sense that the Orioles feel like they can develop a high school prospect, especially one with this skill set, efficiently? I do. I think that. Um, I think that you know, in, in my mind, when he was picked, I was like doing the math and it's like, okay, when did, how long did it take for Bobby Witt to get up? And you know, Bobby Witt missed twenty with COVID, like everybody else did. Um, so it took a little while, but I think that. I think that we're going to know pretty quick because the Orioles could come on the, on the quick path you know, have a couple of weeks in Florida and go to Delmarva and start in Aberdeen. And all of a sudden a who does that is truthfully like a year away from being in big league. If you really, really think about it, because if someone starts in Aberdeen uh, the way that the Orioles have this mapped out, like I said, it's like 200 
250 tops plate appearances at Aberdeen before you moved up to Bowie. And then you're finishing at Bowie or you're pushing to Norfolk at the end of that season. And I think that truthfully you're going to, and I, and when we mentioned him before, but Gunnar Henderson, like the Orioles are, are in a tough place with Gunnar Henderson. And, you know, as we said at the all-star break, because they value so much how they've challenged him and how he has embraced challenges at every level that you can't really like leave him anywhere to, to, you know, to not be challenged. You kind of have to bring him up at some point. I think that, I think that's going to be a similar approach that they take to Jackson holiday. Like, yes, you want him to get his feet under him. You want him to be comfortable, but he understands pro ball lifestyle. He knows what it's going to be like. He knows he's going to stay in a hotel for a long time. You know, he knows he's going to be away from his family. It's going to be tough, but he also might not get better playing in the FCL all spring or all summer. He might not need to be in Delmarva or Aberdeen for very long. He might need to be pushed because once he, once it clicks and once he gets going, the Orioles are not going to say, okay, well, you have to do this for X amount of time. They're going to move them. And I think that's where it goes a little quicker than we expect if it does. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us tonight. And before you hop off, uh, we want you to plug your newsletter. All three of us are subscribers, and we know some of our regular listeners have already subscribed as well. But uh, tell our listeners where they can find it and about the free and paid-for subscription plans and what they get out of that. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. It's called Maximizing Playoff Odds. If you go to uh, johnmioli.substack.com, you can find it. There's one free article a week. There's two, three, maybe even some more uh, paid articles. Um, you know, I like to say that it's anything that might eventually make the Orioles good. I want to write about it. So if it's big league, if it's minor leagues, if it's scouting, if it's player development, um, I want to tell as many of those stories that I can. Um, it's been a blast. I appreciate your guys' support. I appreciate everyone that subscribed so far. Um, you know, I obviously am a big fan of what you guys do as well. I think it's really cool that everyone can kind of work together and, and, and uh, you know, and, and you know, do the work that we all enjoy so much. But I really appreciate everyone that signed up so far. Um, and, and I hope it can continue. It's honestly, it's already surpassed my most optimistic expectations. So it's really cool to see it keep growing. Yeah, it's great. It's it's honestly the highlight of my morning as I'm shaking the cobwebs out, getting ready for work. It's like, oh, yes, I can actually enjoy this morning for about five minutes or so. So, yeah, there you go. Lot. There you go. Well, I woke up this morning to shake the cobwebs out and I realized I messed up the headline. I was like, oh, my God, John, two <laughs> o'clock in the morning. What are you doing? What are you doing? I, I heard from my mom about that one. That's how I know when I really spent time. Like, you need an editor. <laughs> well, thank you so much john for joining us tonight yeah it's always great thank having you. you on and uh I'm, I'm sure we'll get you back soon enough looking forward thanks a lot guys all right thank take you. it easy thank you it's john mioli the author of maximizing playoff odds a baltimore orioles newsletter and as we do at on every episode when we have new patreon members we want to shout them out and i'll turn it over to bob now yeah, so we got a nice little influx of patrons over the past couple of days. I'll even go back to July 7th when I uh, was away. I think, excuse me, Catherine Bochi, welcome aboard. Justin Bach, Isaac Barrow, Will Daub, Jacob Huff, Garrett Seitz, Zach Jones. I know that name from Twitter. Nice to see him join here on Patreon. And Brian Higley. So thank you guys for joining up. Thank you to all of our new Patreon members, and thanks again to John Mioli for appearing. And 
We'll dive in now to day two of this Orioles draft class. We spent about 12 hours yesterday talking about day one, so it's now fitting we turn to day two. And I'll start with the pick that I like the most um, from day two, and that's the third-round selection, Nolan McClain, who was a two-way player at Oklahoma State, a pitcher and a third baseman. The Orioles are planning to develop him as a pitcher, but use him in a little bit of a two-way fashion because he will get the opportunity to bat at DH. Um, and we'll dig a little bit deeper into some of McLean's reports here. But Nick, uh, what is your reaction to this pick? Uh, definitely really intriguing. I and mean, you look at the power numbers and he has kind of insane power. I think I saw the video earlier that he hit a home run like what, 480 something feet uh, in college. So big power bet, but he was announced as a pitcher in the draft. Uh, and then apparently Brad Selig did mention right after the draft that they're going to let him DH because that power is so phenomenal. So that will be interesting to watch in Delmarva and down in Sarasota. But yeah, I think you just look at the, the he's got three pitches at least right now. It's a 98 mile an hour fastball with a, a curveball and slider that grade is plus pitches. Uh, and so I just think the the deal with McLean is that he's so raw on the mound because he hasn't been used as a full-time pitcher. And I like some of these quotes. I saw one Eric Longenhagen in his report said, McLean is a special athlete with a special arm, and he's barely pitched. In the, meaning the Orioles, I go back to, I was thinking back to when we had Justin Ramsey on, and he's like, the organization does a really good job of giving us this really good clay to work with, and we can kind of work our magic on these guys. And this, I feel like, is that prototypical uh, pick right there, where here's a big ball of great clay, now work your magic. Uh, so, yeah, and I saw a couple of other quotes. Uh, people are very, very high on McLean and what his potential could be. Yeah, this is the most exciting pick of day two for me as well. I mean, yeah, it's cool that he has 80-grade raw power and can just absolutely destroy a ball, but he did set the strikeout record, I think, the <laughs> collegiate strikeout record. So not holding out too many hopes for that, but it's cool that he'll be able to get some at-bats at DH just to, just to see if anything's there. But, yeah, like you said, just – I think he's on the younger side, right? He's was a junior, but he's only 20 for a little bit longer. Um, I just, I, he's like a, just a great athlete that was trying that walked onto the football team was a quarterback. I believe didn't quite make it there. Um, was trying to be, make it as a hitter and pitching sparingly. And now he's going to be able to focus full time, use all his athleticism, all of his raw tools and the Orioles are going to try to mold that. And the only thing he's missing, really, other than command and refinement on his high-velocity fastball and high-spin breaking balls is a change-up, which the <laughs> Orioles are pretty good at developing, if we do say so ourselves. And, uh, yeah, if you just can stretch him out gradually over this year and next year, try to teach him that change-up and just let him work on that stuff. I think the athlete alone and the arm talent alone is going to be pretty exciting. And to me, that's like a – Kyle Bradish type upside. I know that's a lot to put on him just right now as a third round pick, but I think I think they're planning to work some magic with this kid, and I'm excited to see what they do. If you look at his scouting grades on MLB Pipeline, it kind of gives you a hint of how unique of a player he is. As a hitter, he has a 55 grade power with a 70 grade arm at third base. On the mound, he has a 65 grade fastball. The control is going to be the issue, and as Bob said, probably developing a change up to go with the fastball curveball slider combination is going to be key for him. But, you know, the Orioles have shown that they can work with pitchers to develop change up. So this does feel like an arm that they can bring into the system and to start working on those areas and hopefully get him stretched out. 
I do feel like that with that mix of pitches, there's an interesting bullpen profile there. But with how young he is and for how much he has to work with, I think you absolutely try to develop him to starter for as long as you can. Yeah. I love that Brad Selick came out from the jump and said, all of these pitchers they took today are going to be used as starters to begin with. Uh, so they're high on them. I think that shows the confidence in these guys. But I do, there are a couple of these guys that I definitely see as real future relievers based on some other you know, numbers and stuff that I've seen. But like McLean, if if that doesn't start out you know, the starter role, if that doesn't work out, then you've got that fallback option of a guy who can throw up to 98, 99 miles an hour with the fastball and a slider. I think I saw where the slider has more than 12 inches of sweep to it. So at worst, you've got a power fastball with a wipeout slider guy uh, to rely on. So this is definitely, I think, I'd say of the first, how many picks do we get here? 12, 13, 14 picks. I definitely say he's probably the most intriguing. Not my favorite, but the most intriguing. We'll go down in the comment from added. There are a lot of prospects taken out of Texas, Florida, and Oklahoma. And we'll go now to the Orioles' fourth-round pick, who was taken with the 100th and 107th selection overall. And that's Silas Orduan, a catcher out of Texas, whose defense is drawing rave reviews. Uh, the son of a former big leader, Danny Orduan, right-handed hitter who – Seems to have an interesting amount of pat power behind the plate. Um, issues with contact in the past, but the defensive profile here is really good that it's easy to look at him now and think that's a possible backup catcher. Yep, I think it's Maverick Hanley's backup to start third catcher in 2027. No, you can see what the Orioles are doing here. Um, if you even just look at some of the other picks from from today it's defense up the middle we've got a center fielder that plays great defensive catcher that was apparently the best defensive catcher in the draft at least according to some people and in a shortstop that can play great defense so obviously those are positions that you want because there's you can always move them around shortstop can move center fielder can move if you need to but it helps not only just having players at premium positions that can you hopefully develop but you can also have great defense behind your pitchers which helps the pitcher development and yeah, I love it. I think this guy has got a great catch and release. He threw out 42% of base dealers this past year. He he's handled great pitchers in the past, Ty Madden, Bryce Elder. So yeah, I think it's just another guy that Orioles pitchers are going to love throwing to. And I think that is not nothing. So you, you've heard everyone rave about throwing to Maverick Hanley behind the plate and Adley Rutschman. So add Silas to the list of great catchers in the system. Yeah, I mean, you listen to the pitchers we've had on the show talk, and their their whole demeanor changes when they start talking about Maverick Hanley because they feel comfortable throwing to him. He knows what to do. He's two, three steps ahead. And we don't know if, you know, Ardoin has that kind of, you know, makeup, but the defensive skills are there. We'll see what kind of guy he is behind the plate, you know, what mentally, what kind of catcher is he. But I think the thing that impressed me the most with Ardoin learning about him here is that the bat is already showing big improvements in college. And so like I'm thinking this is Maverick Hanley, but maybe the offensive profile is you know, juiced up a little bit earlier. Um, so I think you need guys like this in your system as many as possible. And I love, love players like this. Maverick Hanley is one of my favorite prospects. Connor Pavoloni was a guy that I was really excited to watch this year. Uh, even though the offense may not be there, unfortunately, he's, I think he's done for the year. But um, So you need guys like this to help out these young pitching staff uh, in the lower levels of the minor leagues. And if the bat continues to play as he moves up, then 
You know, he's got the MLB bloodlines. He's been a successful catcher with catching how many guys on that Texas staff are close to the big leagues or like top 100 prospects. I mean, he's caught a lot of elite arms. And so this is a guy that I'm sure the Orioles were pretty giddy to bring into their organization. And I, this is a position where it never hurts to have too much depth um, because, you know, catcher is a volatile position. There's a chance for things to happen. And even though I think that we all expect that the Orioles might have the game's next, you know, best catcher for the next decade on their roster right now, there's still the volatility factor there. There's still a risk factor. But then having catchers who can call a good game and play steady defense at every level of the minor leagues is going to make your pitching staffs better. And you go back to when Justin Ramsey was on our show a few months ago, and he talked about the prop catchers at Norfolk had at that time and how that was so good for their pitching staff. I think you could see that throughout the Orioles system right now, and Arduan fits into that. I just like these offensive numbers too. I I don't think I know the reports were like he can't run. He's slow. He's not going to like, you know steal any bases. You know Maverick Hanley didn't he, he like almost lead Aberdeen. He was one of the league leaders with Aberdeen stolen bases. Uh, he is not that, but um, pretty much he had about fifty more plate appearances this year compared to last year. Went from one home run to twelve home runs, nine doubles to twenty doubles. Batting average up forty points. You know OPS went up two hundred points from seven hundred four to nine hundred four. So clearly he took a big jump offensively and uh, teams took notice. I'm glad the Orioles took notice because they they pretty much took all the up-the-middle strength there from this Texas squad, and that was a, a pretty good college squad down there. Yeah, you don't need much offense to make it in the major leagues as a catcher, so mm-hmm. anything you can provide with that kind of defense is, is just a bonus, especially when you're probably most likely just slated to be a backup at some point if he makes it. Move on now to the Orioles' fifth-round pick. Trace Bright, a right-handed pitcher out of Auburn, who has an interesting profile. He led Auburn in strikeouts and innings pits this past season. He got off to a strong start this season before slowing down a little bit, but there's some really interesting reports out there on his stuff. And I'll pull this quote up here from Brad Selick. This is in the Baltimore Sun, talking about Bright. All these guys have weapons they can utilize both sides, both against left-handed and right-handed hitters, and will fully look to maximize that arsenal so they definitely see some traits that they like in bright this is my favorite pick you guys like mclean uh i like bright i don't know what part of it's ryan watson i mean come on that's all you need to know right there uh undrafted 2020 out of auburn but uh i'm getting the sense that he's someone that you can really project and dream on a bit and will be a really good case study for that kind of allows us to follow and see just how good this pitcher development staff is this system is in place and i think that from some of the reports i'm reading here and some of these numbers and a lot of the stuff comes from mason mccray specifically about bright fantastic follow on twitter if you aren't following him already but some of his notes here were that yeah it's he relies maybe a little bit too much on the fastball and there's control command issues that hold him back but you saw the velo bump three or four miles per hour he's throwing up to 97 miles an hour now and he says it's a sneaky good profile that looks intriguing when you look at the underlying data, three above average secondaries, all of which induce a ton of chases and whiffs. Doesn't have sharp feel for them right now, but doesn't and doesn't consistently land them in the zone. But it's a starter profile with four 55 plus grade pitches. And so it really seems like he's got all the baseline tools there. And if the Orioles can just get that command, get that control, you've got a legitimate starting pitching prospect here, a sleeper legitimate starting pitching prospect here with Bright. And you know, I kind of go back to my mind thinks of like a Noah DeNoyer, Zach Peake, 
Drew Rom, even these guys who Drew Rom didn't really struggle with the control, but you know, Zach Peek and Noah Denoyer walks were a little bit of an issue in the lower levels of the minor leagues. They cleaned them up, and now those guys are throwing strikes and not walking anybody. Uh, very few guys. Drew Rom's walk rate went down as he moved up the ladder. So I'm getting kind of those vibes from Trace from Trace Bright. Yeah, I like this pick a lot too. And what do you know? It's the fifth round. It reminds me of last year's fifth round pick a little bit, Carlos Tavera, where you saw sitting in the low 90s and then all of a sudden the Orioles drafting him. Oh, no, he's up into the mid 90s and throwing harder. And we think we can work with his breaking stuff. And, and Bright kind of reminds me of that with his increase in velocity over the, the past six months or so. And he's got a nice four pitch mix. He's six foot four. We know Elias likes those big guys. He's only right around 200 pounds, so he can still add some muscle. Maybe he can gain even a little more velocity and durability. He didn't have the the numbers in college to they make you go, wow. But I don't think that's what the Orioles really care about. I think they just want to get the profiles that they like. They know they can work with. They've proven that they can improve. And you know, Noah Denoyer first is like the biggest example ever, undrafted after 40 rounds, and look what they've done with him. So, yeah, I'm a big fan of this pick as well. Um, Trace Bright could certainly be the next Carlos Tavera where this time next year, he's, whoa, he's almost in our top 30 or he's in our top 50. So yeah, another great selection in my opinion. So I'm glad you brought up Tavera because that's where I was going to go with this. Tavera started his first full season out at high A Aberdeen and had been really effective there. He just got hurt again recently. We don't know fully what's going on yet with the injury, but he had been pretty sharp for the Ironbirds this year, and he came out of a much smaller school and a much smaller conference than Bright out of Auburn. So do you think that a Tavera-like path for Bright is realistic, where he would pitch at Delmarva sometime this summer and then start next year in Aberdeen's rotation? I mean, I could see that. You know, he's come from the bigger school, but it, it just seems like even if you don't want to look at just the numbers, right? I think a lot of the reports that I've read said – he did struggle a lot this year. And so if if all the pieces are there, though, and this is a guy that you're going to have to sit here and mold for a little bit, which is fine, but uh, maybe he spends a little bit more time in Delmarva to clean things up. But I feel like once he really clicks, this just seems to me like a guy who, once it clicks, he's going to move much faster. Like Tavera, once we saw it click halfway, well, a couple of weeks ago, it seemed like he really started to take off. And he was like, this guy's going to be in buoy by the all-star break or right after the all-star break. And unfortunately injuries have just derailed his season this year, apparently. But um, yeah, it was the guy that once he started firing strikes and piling up those strikeouts, the walks went down and and the production went up. And so I kind of see that same path with bright here. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I could easily see him starting next year in Delmarva if they just feel like, you know, they're still working on a couple of things, but the reason why they might just go ahead and put him in Aberdeen anyway, is just because Aberdeen is a park that kind of can help pitchers that need a little bit of, extra time just because it's such a pitcher friendly ballpark. But yeah, I can easily see him being in that trajectory or even if it's a little bit behind, I still think he's young enough that he can easily catch up in a year or two and, and get where they need him to be. Right. Well, by the way, I'm pulling this uh, stat from Auburn, his 94 strikeouts this past season were the fourth most by any Auburn pitcher since 2000. Looking at the, these three picks that we just covered uh, McLean, Arduan, Bright, do any of them profile as top 50 guys for you? And if so, just a general range. I know we're a few weeks out from updating the top 50 fully, but ideas are in general range of where they would stand. I have my exact rankings, but uh, um, yeah, I think McLean for me, he's 
he's top 50 for sure. I have him just barely in my top 30 at number 30, actually, just because I like the upside if everything goes well. It's a little more boomer bust than Trace Bright, who I have in my top 100 as well. But I, I just love the upside that he could potentially bring if everything goes well. And then Silas Ardwan, I have just outside of my top 50 right now. I have him just a little bit below Maverick Hanley, just because Hanley's been in the system a while. He's shown the uh, improved hitting at double A, and obviously the defense is just you can't question it. So, yeah, I have them all in my top 100 and one firmly in my top 51 just outside. Yeah, just I have not looked into this at all yet. <laughs> so, uh, just ballparking it, I would probably say McLean. I would want to put fringe top 30, probably the 30, 35 range maybe is where I probably end up setting him up. Um, I'm looking at our list right now. We got like Chris Val- Valamont 34, and I don't know if I want to put him ahead of Chris Valamont uh, right now, but uh, Arduan may be a fringy top 50 guy, but there have been so many other pitchers that we've been looking at here that I think are have jumped into that back end of the top 50 there as well. So he's probably just outside my top 50. Yeah, McLean probably will definitely be on my list. Right now, broadly speaking, the 30 to 40 range is where he settles, probably closer to 30 than to 40. Arduan is circling the outer edge of my top 50. The question I would have, though, is is there room for him and Maverick Hanley on it? Because like Bob said, Hanley is doing now what you would hope Arduan is doing two years from now. Arduan, I think, is entering pro ball in a better place offensively than Hanley was when he came into pro ball. But, you know, with the strides that Hanley has made, he's probably earned the right to be ranked ahead of Arduan at this point. Wright would fall outside the top 50 for me, but he would kind of fall on that list where it's like, all right, you know, after a certain number of innings against this type of competition, I'm going to reevaluate because it's possible I'm sleeping on something right now. Just, just remember Maverick Hanley is still the guy. Mm-hmm. Just, just gonna throw that out there. Don't love forget you about him. Love you, Ardoan, but he's not replacing Maverick Hanley anytime soon, right now. No, I mean we've been on the Maverick Hanley as Adley Rutzman's backup catcher hype train for how long now? Two years. Well, he since he was drafted, maybe. <laughs> Pretty much. So going all the way back to when we started the show. <laughs> yeah. Essentially. So we go now the Orioles' sixth round pick. Douglas Hodo to third. This is another up-the-middle player who comes out of Texas and center fielder who MLB pipeline, this is a direct quote, uh, Douglas's center field skills and fearlessness have earned him comparisons to Kevin Pillar and Eric Burns. Uh, his Hodo speed continues to stand out, and he can flash plus, plus, plus run times out of the batter's box. And this is someone who hits from the right-hand side. So that makes his speed even more impressive in my mind. So looking at a player with an interesting speed and defense combination here in the sixth round. Yeah, for me, I want to get excited about this pick because his defensive highlight is so much fun to watch. Uh, and it it's the plus plus speed is impressive, but it seems like like base running some of the reports I was reading that it's not necessarily going to translate to big stolen base numbers on base paths, but defensively you're going to see it. Uh, and even he probably ends up moving to right field. Even I think I saw somebody say, but lots of reports that love his high energy, high baseball IQ. And I did see where he has tagged a few balls at 110 plus miles an hour. So 
And that's what's led some people to believe that there is some sneaky pop there in the bat that he could be a double digit home run guy. But I just, I can't shake like Ryan McKenna vibes from this. And I've, I hate comps and I get burned by every Ryan McKenna comp I make here. Um, Thinking back to Zach Watson last year, but I don't know. It's maybe the Orioles figured out what they've done with Ryan McKenna or not done with Ryan McKenna. And you can reverse that and do that with uh, Douglas Hodo here and get you a good prospect. I don't know. Yeah, the profile does scream Ryan McKenna. Um, but to be honest, I mean, six-round pick, if you can get Ryan McKenna, guaranteed a six-round pick, I think you take it every time. I mean, he's got a high floor just because the defense is so legit and the speed, obviously. I kind of put him in the same range as – actually, I have him 68th on my top 100 with Zach Watson at 69 and Johnny Reiser at 70. I put him in that league of outfielder where it's like, yeah, we're going to have some awesome video highlights on our Twitter feed of this guy throughout the, his minor league career. And you can dream on the development that you know if everything goes right, man. You can really see this guy doing something at the major leagues. But then will it ever happen? I don't know. I'm not giving up on those other two guys necessarily either, but I think he's kind of going to – going to be in uh, that range of player. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. You kind of put him in that Zach Watson, Johnny Ryder camp where there's going to be some highlight real plays. He's going to have his moments at the bat, but the challenge is going to be, can he hit enough to separate himself in a system where there's a lot of talented outfielders? The speed and defense do give him an interesting floor. And I think that if you end up a reserve type outfielder for a six round pick, you're doing pretty well. Um, what I wonder is you're reading some things about his power and how much are you able to tap into that? Um, it seems like there's a sense that his ceiling might be kind of a low to mid double digits home run hitter, kind of in that 12 to 15 range, but a lot would have to go right in his development to get there. That's why I just get those McKenna vibes because you look at his numbers, he went from five home runs to 10 home runs from sophomore to junior year, and then nine doubles to 26 doubles. And so you wonder, like, yeah, all right, there's more power in that bet. What happens if you tap into that power and then everything else kind of starts to fall apart a little bit? Uh, and so, you know, we've kind of speculated before, did Ryan McKenna, when he was down there in Bowie, was he selling out for more power and then the rest of the game just wasn't working? Should he have just begin, been a more of, you know, the gap-to-gap type hitter, use that speed, use that athleticism? So it'll be interesting to see Hodo's path here. But, I mean, he's been a stalwart at that top of that Texas lineup for – couple of years now and again that's one of the top programs in the country so it speaks volumes to both hodo and arduan and what type of athletes these guys are yeah i guess the dream is he can make that new camden corner and left center field his home and hit like 10 triples a year up in there so i don't know (laughs) the orioles seventh round pick was preston johnson a right-hander out of mississippi state who is listed at 6'4 250 pounds he pitched exclusively in relief for mississippi state last year, but was moved into the rotation for 2022. And in 13 starts, he went three and four to five, four, 70 RA with 117 strikeouts in 79 innings pits. Now we hear all the time about how the Orioles love SEC bats and they go with an SEC pitcher here who, you know, that ERA does not look great. You have to wonder, you know, does he have the stuff to stick as a starter, but those are pretty good strikeout numbers. So, Feels like there's something interesting here with Johnson. I definitely think there's something interesting here. And like Brad Selick said today, talking to reporters, all these guys they drafted today will start out as starters in in the system. And 
and see where they go from there. And I could see this could be an interesting one because he's got a high spin fastball that sits between 90 and 93. But as big as he is, I feel like maybe they can eke out another mile per hour or two with the fastball. And then he's got a change up in a slider and he flashes it. Wait. Yeah, a change up in a slider and he flashes a curveball every once in a while. So either you can try to make him a three, four pitch mixed guy. If you get that velocity up, maybe he sticks as a back end starter. But if that doesn't work out, maybe you just go to his three pitches, try to ramp it up in the bullpen and see how it goes. Because obviously that high spin fastball had hitters confused with that many strikeouts last year. It's, I actually saw where the fastball can get up to 95 and it the fastball alone had a 25% whiff rate last season. So that pitch clearly works. And former guest of the show, Will Hafer from Prospects Live, he actually tweeted after the pick and said that he really likes uh, Johnson's slider and changeup and said they could be above average pitches. And then from a bigger Prospects Live report I saw, said Johnson was a reliever for much of last year after transferring from community college but made his presence known throws a ton of strikes, gets a ton of swing and misses, and has a metrically sexy fastball. So I am intrigued. Uh, the breaking ball needs to find the zone more often, but it exhibits swing and miss. Um, yeah, it exhibits strong shape characteristics and should be an above-average offering at the pro level. Really just all coming out to that control. Can he continue to pound the strike zone with his pitches? Uh, it says he's not a great athlete, so projecting out can be tricky, but the package as is currently constructed is intriguing. So there you go. It's, it's again, you've got the tools there. Can the Orioles put it all together? And at worst, you've got a big, powerful, I think, back-end relief arm here with Johnson. These, these guys all have profiles that I think they could at least fall back on. I think we have to call metrically sexy. Just that's, that, that's got to be something. we got to do something with that. Apparently, his nickname's Beef. Uh, I think Mississippi State or somebody was tweeting, put some Old Bay on the beef and uh, <laughs> after he got drafted. so That's pretty good. In the eighth round, the Orioles went with another right-handed pitcher out of college. This one, Cameron Weston, a 6'2", 250-pound right-hander. Weston pitched for the Wolverines and was ranked by D1 Baseball as a top-five prospect in the Big Ten. He started 11 games from them this year and had a 4.74 ERA compared to a 2.81 number in 2021, even though his batting average against decreased. So perhaps there was some bad luck involved there. Um, struck out batters at a higher rate than he did a year ago with 92 strikeouts compared to 68 in 2021, even though he threw fewer innings. Yeah, it's just <laughs> rinse and repeat here. It's another, you know, metrically sexy <laughs> pitcher that the Orioles can work with here. Um, yeah, just another, you know, clay piece of clay that hopefully they can mold into their vision and we can talk about, um, sorry, I've got to get the name again. Cameron Weston around this time next year. Like he's Peter Van Loon or Justin Armbruster. And wow, look, this guy's doing in high A and he's going to be up in double A Bowie soon. So, yeah, I think don't worry about, you know, drafting these high profile arms early on in the draft because the Orioles, I think they figured out what they want to do when it comes to the pitching. With that being said, though, this is the pick that I, I'm, am least excited about here when I was looking up information. Uh, and so I fully expect this to be the pick where two days from now, we're going to get like bigger reports from you know, like Matt blood's going to come out with some interview and be like with Dan Connolly, of course, <laughs> hyping up the pitching prospects and Cameron Weston is going to be the new guy that they tag, of course. But I, I want to know more about Weston because the numbers were 
great at Michigan, but and it seemed like he even started working mostly as a reliever. But he pitched in the Cape Cod this summer and had a 21 to 5 strikeout to walk ratio and a 0.84 ERA in the Cape. So clearly something really clicked with him. And I want to know what that is because the one report I read just dogged him. They every pitch in his arsenal, it says he has six pitches, but was like, I think two of them, the description was this they suck. Um, so uh, kind of a rough report to read off of at the beginning, but something clicked for this guy for him to have so much success in the Cape. Like that's a, it's an impressive league against some of the top college bats. So I I'm anxious if we can get, you know, Brad Selick on here, Brad Selick on here and uh, get more information about Weston. Cause we'll see it with him. Yeah, I do agree. That was my least favorite pick of, of the draft so far, but I can at least understand where they're coming from. I would be curious to know how much the his performance in the Cape influences pick at all, if any, just because it does feel like that could be a way to boost your stock a little bit after kind of the season that I think could you know best be described as a mixed bag. So I would be curious to find out how much that influenced the Orioles. Well, how much did Cade Horton, uh, his helium come from a slider that he learned like what was it, a month ago, a month before? Uh... You know, the season yeah. ended. Yeah, I, I just think looking back last year, too, the Orioles did that with a guy. I'm thinking like Dylan Hyde, who pitched in the draft league. And you saw all the huge metrics coming off some of his pitches. And he had a good draft league experience. And then the Orioles went and grabbed him. All right, bring him in the organization. Let's see what he can do. So maybe that's the situation here where they liked what they saw in the Cape. And they're like, all right, let's bring him in and see what we can do with him. We'll go now to the ninth round pick for the Orioles, and that was Adam Crampton, a shortstop out of Stanford, who was well-regarded for his defense, and in fact was named the Pac-12 Defensive Player of the Year this past spring. Offensively, Crampton is not, does not seem to offer much power projection, but does get on base, 395 on base percentage this past season, and struck out only eight more times than he walked. I feel like if you can get a plus defender at shortstop in the ninth round of the draft, that's pretty good, especially one coming from a school like Stanford. I don't know offensively that Crampton's going to bring much of a ceiling uh, or much of a profile at all to the organization, but to get a good defender at this spot, I was fine with this pick. Yeah. Colin Burns, is that you? Um, It's a great glove. Obviously that's like I talked about earlier, that's just going to help the pitchers that, and you never know. I saw something that said he had gained 20 pounds of muscle in high school before losing it again in college. And they said, maybe if he gets that back, he could add some power to the frame. I'm not counting on that, but he did perform well at the Northwoods league OPS around 800 with 10 walks and 11 strikeouts. Doesn't strike out much. So, you know, who knows? He could be a Caden Grenier, but in the ninth round instead of the first or second, whatever he was. Yeah. I, I like this pick. I think it could be fun to watch, especially in lower, lower levels of the minor league. You need guys like this in your system. Uh, and, you know, we'll see, you know, is Anthony Servideo going to play this year again? So, you know, what's, what's his status like? So I think there's room for Crampton, especially in the lower levels of the minor leagues. We got three now PAC 12 defensive players of the year in this system. So yeah, he looks fun out there. So it seems like he can stick at shortstop as well. And, you know, if the power comes back, if the Orioles could tap into more of that power, apparently he was a good power hitter in high school. Fine, sure. I, I agree. I don't necessarily see that either because there was zero of that at Stanford. But, you know, hey, I'll take whatever positive reports I can get here. But 
Yeah, I just think this is a good, solid defensive pick. You know, he's Stanford smart guy, so he's he's going to help out. And it seems like he's another high energy guy as well. So I think it's going to be fun to watch early on, and, and then we'll see where his development path takes him. Go now to the tenth rounder in the last pick the Orioles made today, and that was right-hander Wyatt Cheney, who was drafted out of McLennan Community College in Texas. Cheney actually started his college career at Oklahoma State, but transferred to McLennan after the 2021 season, and he put up very strong numbers for them this year, fanning 122 batters in 81 and two-thirds innings pits. He has a commitment to go play for Texas next season if he does not sign with the Orioles, but good, uh, interesting pickup here, and I'll read this quote from Brad Selick. Uh, This is from the Baltimore Sun. He has a unique fastball profile we look for. He has elite hop on his fastball and a pair of breaking balls that play immensely well. And what was missing? A changeup that they could teach him. So, yeah, this, I mean, the Toby Welk of pitching maybe, like this is the most intriguing pick for me towards the back half of like 6 to 10, just because what do we have here? How much can you really go off of his numbers in that league? Um, with, what, 122 strikeouts, certainly 20 walks, 6 to 1 strikeout to walk ratio is pretty darn good. Um, I don't, is this going to be an overslot guy? I know we don't care about that, but um it's just it's so interesting you gotta love it when you can make jim callis go yeah i got nothing so the <laughs> orioles know something and that may, that gives me hope at least yeah the mlb so the draft tracker has him listed at six feet i want to say his player profile on his college website had him at 511 if I, that's what i had written down was 511 and now i'm looking at the tracker where it says six feet so i don't know which one is right i'm probably going to err on the side of he's probably 511 but um, you look at those strikeout numbers, and those are pretty insane. The fastball velo is like 93, and the slider. A lot of the videos I saw, there were a lot of knee buckling going on in some of these videos with that slider. But I kind of got the sense of, all right, he's not your tall, typical tall power guy that the Orioles go after. But if he's truly 5'11", maybe a little bit on the shorter side, I'm thinking more of that Gene Pinto, Alex Pham. Yes. More specifically, Alex Pham is what I thought about just because of the draft. Pinto, we know, is in his own class. But you know, Alex Pham was this later round pick out in San, out of San Francisco. Had a good year before his injury. And I think it was uh, kind of a serious injury. We haven't heard anything specific, but I, I remember watching that game, seeing him go down. Um, but a smaller guy with a huge curveball that I think the Orioles really love, except switch the curveball for a slider and you've got Wyatt Cheney here. Uh, and probably with a better fastball as well. So like John mentioned at the top of the show, it's they've got their guys, they've got their mold that they like. They're just going after those same guys with higher picks. And Shaney, here's a, another pick. You know, if this is Alex Pham, but with a better breaking ball, better fastball, all right, well, this is a guy who clearly the Orioles could fast track, I almost think. Yeah, they're going to use him as a starter, like they said, but my first thought was, do you just say, all right, let's go to Delmarva, keep throwing strikes, and just throw that fastball, throw that slider, and let's see how high you can go in this organization. I think I would start him out in the rotation and see what he does, but – you know, if you get to Aberdeen or Bowie and you start to look at him and feel like, all right, well, that fastball slider combination could allow him to move quickly out of the bullpen. And maybe he's got more of a reliever's build. And you know what? We've got some other options here in the rotation or for starters in the farm system. Let's move him to the bullpen. So this is a possible helium pick in the sense that I could see him being the kind of guy that if he does sign, his stock could rise quickly next year if that fastball slider combination holds up against pro ball and he develops a change up to go with that. But 
we're through all those first 10 picks there, but what is the grade? What grade do we give this draft class, guys? The listeners well, need grades. Oof. Each each pick, we need to go back and grade A, B, C, D. <laughs> I'm giving it an M for metrically yeah. sexy. <laughs> yeah, there's no, there's no benefit in looking at a draft class three years later when you actually know how the players did and grading it then. No, grade right now. Let's grade the 2019 draft right now. A. <laughs> A plus. No. A plus, yes. Can we make sure the title of this episode is metrically sexy? Just yes. It has to be at this point. <laughs> we um, might get less downloads for <laughs> SEO, but I do not care. So I'm not going to ask you to assign a letter grade, either one of you to assign a letter grade, because um, we just all, I think, sarcastically agree that that's a terrible idea. But looking at the first 10 rounds and the picks that the Orioles have made, how do you feel about how this class is shaping up? I'm a fan, personally. I can see, you know, there's some that are less exciting than others, but I I see what they're trying to do. I feel like they're in a groove now. Like, they have a plan. You kind of know what they're going to do, and they've proven that they can develop these types of players. And I'm excited to see how these guys join the ranks of our current prospects and how they develop over the next year or two. Yeah, I think you look at the top four guys, you hit your guy with Jackson Holiday. You didn't go Brooks Lee. You didn't go Jacob Berry. You got one of those high school bats, and this seems to be the guy that it wasn't consensus among the organization, but like they mentioned in some of these interviews where everyone in that final decision-making room said, yes, like I can see this being the pick, right? So there was consistency in that area. You nailed your first pick, hopefully, you think, with Jackson Holiday. I love the Dylan Beavers pick a lot because it's risky, he could flame out, and there could be issues with that hit tool. But if he hits and does this Kyle Stowers trajectory, you've got a fantastic pick here with Beavers. And then you've got some good, you know, solid Max Wagner. That's He's kind of like the John Rhodes to me of this draft mm-hmm. class. Could go either way. And then Judd Fabian is, I feel like, the safe, hot, safer, higher floor guy. Forget the batting average. There's so many other good things with Judd Fabian's profile and what he did at Florida. I think that's your, your another solid pick to round out the top of this draft. And now you filled it out with guys who, yeah, they're risky, but if some of these hit, if just one or two of these guys hit from rounds three through 10, I think you got a really impressive draft class here. Yeah, the, the Beavers pick is the one that has grown in my estimation, even just from when we reacted live to it last night. That one, I've moved him up from 12 initially to, to 10 right now. Um, like you said, it could wash out a little bit, but there's a lot of upside there. And Judd Fabian, it's been two years in the making, so it had to happen. I think I saw something. I don't even know how they did this, but his play in center field like carved off like .067 OPS on average from a hitter's profile when they hit the ball to center field, something like that. Basically, his defense is, is incredible, and he's obviously got power. So if he can – be the rich man, Zach Watson, who hits 240, pops 20, 25 home runs and plays awesome center field. You might have something. I like this class a lot. Um, Holiday, I think, was worthy of the number one selection. I think that the tools for him to be a consistent all-star at the major league level are there. And based on what we've seen so far in the Orioles' development of Gunnar Henderson, I think they're going to find a way to maximize Jackson Holiday's potential. The Dylan Beavers pick, completely agree with you, Bob. I like that pick even more now than I did last night when it first happened. And much like with Gunnar Henderson and Jackson Holiday, you have a parallel in Kyle Stowers to see what Dylan Beavers can do. And 
Max Wagner, very intrigued by this pick. I want to see what he does. And Judd Fabian, I just love the fact that you have so much depth in center field now. Mm-hmm. That's one thing that's been clearer consensus about Fabian during his time as Florida is he's going to stick in center field. So now you have him, Colton Kowser, Hudson Haskin, and Cedric Mullins all in the same organization. Not to mention a guy like Zach Watson who is lagging right now with the bat, but there's no, you know, doubt that his defense could play in center field. So to have that much depth at center field is really encouraging. And I like the McLean pick. I'm really intrigued by it because I think in a lot of ways, this is a new frontier for this organization where you take a guy that has clear upside, but is really raw. You draft him at, you know, what is a high spot to draft a pitcher under this regime. And you bring him in, you're going to work with him, but you're also going to maintain that two-way profile, which is not something we have seen the Orioles try to do. So I'm going to have fun watching McLean once he hits an affiliate. Absolutely. And Hodo is another pure center fielder that you know is going to give you some good defense out there. Now, if you're looking ahead to day three, uh, just pull up Oklahoma State, Oklahoma. (laughs) Pull up all those Texas, Oklahoma college rosters. And, uh, yeah, your next picks come from there, apparently. Honestly, in day three, I am expecting to see maybe one or two, like, high school position player, community college guy like Trenton Craig, something like that. Just someone that they've got in their back pocket that they can kind of scatter some of the extra money around to. So I'm still interested interested to see who they take. And I'm sure they're going to take a few more pictures as well. We'll go now to some listener questions we've gotten for the show and we'll wrap up there. We're going to start with Vivek. After 10 rounds, which themes do you see in this draft similar and or different from other drafts? And I'll let Nick start this one. Uh, similar different to other drafts. I mean, I, I think John answered this question perfectly at the top there. You know, it's, they're taking, they have the process in place of what they like, how they're going to develop hitters, how they're going to develop pitchers. And it's working so far. Uh, I'm going to keep saying this. We haven't seen it fully, you know, materialized to major league talent yet. We all realize that, but when you look at all four levels of the minor leagues, what the Orioles are doing is working up to this point. And so now there's one more hurdle we have to clear, but everything seems to be on the right path. And so, you know, I think right now you just go after guys who look at last year's draft class. Now, can you find guys similar to those guys? Um, you know, I, I don't know at this point, like just give me the best available players too. after 10 rounds. Now that we're looking at this draft class, who who's available, just give me the best available guy and let's see what this organization can do with them. Yeah, to me, it's like it's the process is set. Now they're just pumping it full steroids and getting it to work efficiently and 100%, you know, trying to maximize it. That's all it is. Refinement from here on out. Completely agree with that assessment. Question from Towns. As the Orioles begin to moving away from picking in the top 10, hopefully, how should their draft strategy change? I don't know that it should. I mean, I think you're going to see more of the same. I think they're just going to take, you know, the most polished bats they can, unless there's an arm there that's intriguing enough to make them go that route. I think it's just going to be, you know, you're not going to get the high upside guys like Holiday, Adley, Kowser, Kerstad, but you're going to, I'm sure, let's see, if the Orioles picked 20th in this draft, they probably would have took someone like Drew Gilbert, right? I mean, they're going to take a polished bat that they think they can just maximize his uh, potential. 
Yeah, I, I wouldn't change a thing right now. You're, you're going to tweak everything, but you're still going to follow overall the same draft strategy, and it's just going to be about replenishing what's gone. And you know, we, I go back to what Bob said a long time ago. It's keep using that draft to raise the floor, right? It's keep, the, as these guys keep graduating, you're not going to be able to bring in two or three top guys. You're not going to bring in a Jackson Holiday type player and a Judd Fabian type player and a Dylan Beavers type player, but you can get one or two of those high floor guys to bring into your system to replace the one or two guys who have graduated or you're going to trade off at some point. And then you got the international market or the international draft, if that becomes a thing in the next year or two, uh, to go after those high ceiling guys uh, and load your system, stockpile your system that way. So I wouldn't, as long as this continues to work, I'm not changing anything. Exactly. I think you're going to find that players like Dylan Beavers are still available when you're picking in the 20s. And, you know, going forward, that might be the first pick in the Orioles draft. And then there's going to be these pitchers that are available you know, in the second through 10th rounds that fit the profile of a lot of guys we talked about tonight. Good fastball, maybe a slider and a curveball to go with that. They need refinement, developing change up. Perhaps they're a little raw, just don't have that much experience. So you're going to hope that by that time, you have a few examples of your player development system making a pitcher like that successful. And you can continue to deploy that strategy while tweaking it just enough because yeah, if the Orioles are successful, which I think they're on the track to being, other teams are going to start doing this. So it's about being able to find how do you stick to your philosophy, but maybe tweak the formula and the data a little bit so that you stay ahead of the curve. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, the Orioles have spent so much time, you know, since Elias and company and SIG, they, they took over trying to catch up and stay on par. Now I think the next frontier is going to be the, to get in front and stay in front and kind of keep the competitive edge. And hopefully in three more years, four more years, we're the team that everyone's like, man, what are the Orioles doing? We need to copy what they're doing. Kind of like we look at the guardians Rays, Astros of your, so yeah, that's the dream. Another question from Vivek. Um, what have they, meaning the Orioles learned in the early returns of Tavera, Arn Brewster and Van Loon? Those are some names we talked about tonight as far as pitchers that the Orioles have drafted in recent years that have been turning in strong 2022 seasons. This organization can develop pitchers. Point blank, case closed. No, I think, all right, yeah, you got Grayson Rodriguez, you got Deal Hall at the top, and then you got that, you know, Kyle Bradish range, but you're building this massive pool of guys. And I know people are like, yeah, we've got too many of these, you know, fringy starter, fifth, you know, fifth spot in your rotation type prospects. Well, yeah, you need a massive pool of these guys because you've got Rodriguez, who is hopefully your workhorse in the rotation. D.L. Hall, we hope, is part of this rotation, and he's pitching lights out right now. you got John Means coming back. You hope Kyle Bradish or Zimmerman, someone else can stick in that rotation, one more person of that group as well. You go out and you trade all of these bats you're stockpiling. You trade one for a frontline starter, if you want to go sign a free agent starter and spend big money there, you can as well. But I think we're nearing the point where the Orioles are going to be able to trade for just about any pitcher they want that's available in the market. And so now you're able to build up this massive stockpile of legitimate talents. Like imagine being able to dip down and bring up just an arm Brewster or Peter Van Loon or Carlos Tavera for a spot start or two, three weeks if some guys on the IL. Imagine you're going to be able to rely on those guys who have worked with Rutschman. They've worked with Hanley. They've worked with the system 
they've come up, they're familiar with everybody instead of bringing Joe Dirt off the street who <laughs> throws 89 miles an hour, right? You're not going to be relying on those guys anymore. So we're, I'm about to get on the soapbox here about pitching development in this organization. I'll just end that there. We bring pitchers here. <laughs> yes, I would say this time last year, I was in the mindset, I think this pitching development is going to work. And now this year, I'm like, I know this pitching development can work. At least maybe next year it'll be will work, but I know that it can. And I know that these guys are great examples of, of why and how. Going down to a question from Ben. And while we're talking draft tonight, the home run derby is taking place as we're recording the show. So Ben wants to know which members, which eight members of the Orioles farm system would you put in an organizational home run derby and who would win? So I'll start with my eight. Robert Newstrom, Samuel Basayo, Gunnar Henderson, Jordan Westberg. I'd put him in there. Um, Kobe Mayo. Can't forget him. And then as for the other three spots, um, hmm, this is where it gets to be a little bit tricky. Kyle Stowers definitely is in that mix. Heston Kerstad. And then for my eighth spot, when Hudson Haskin gets on a roll, it's interesting. He could be one of those sneaky, like, under-the-radar guys who gets into the finals. As far as who I think wins that, I'll take Stowers. Interesting. Yeah, this was my favorite question we got asked, so I had already highlighted some guys in my spreadsheet. Um, the four favorites, I think, would have to be Gunnar Henderson, Kobe Mayo, Kyle Stowers, Heston Kerstad. No doubt about it. Top 10 prospects overall. Supreme power. And my four dark horses would be Yusniel Diaz in a don't forget about me slot, Robert Newstrom in I can hit the ball as far as anyone when I connect slot, TT Bowens with <laughs> raw versus game power this year. And I was going to do Andrew Doshbach for the last one, but I think I'm going to switch things up and go with Nolan McLean fresh into the system. Yeah, he's a pitcher, but obviously he can just <laughs> mash a ball deep. Smart pick there. Uh, yeah, you got to go Basayo, Gunner, Westberg. Was that three? Mayo, four. Newstrom, five. Kyle Stowers, six. So my other two spots, I'm going to go Doshbach because the dude is either striking out or hitting a bomb. So mm-hmm. I'm going to go Doshbach in there. And I want to go TT Bowens as well. But uh, yeah, give me TT Bowens. I was going to say Ryan Higgins as my sneaky pick, but I'm looking at like, I don't. I think TT Bowens can outlast him. This is about longevity here, so I think TT Bowens can uh, outlast it. Jacob Nottingham. No, um, <laughs> I knew he would. Um, uh, you got me all flustered now, Simpkin. Um, yeah, of that group, like I think, I think Kobe Mayo wins it. He's young. He's going to be able to outlast these other guys, but I want to see Kobe Mayo and a Samuel Basayo in the final. Not gonna yeah. lie, I forgot to say who would win. Give me curse, Dad, just for the uh, the storyline. You have any other questions? Um, oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, this one from Matt: yeah. What's current prospect is the most expendable use for a trade after the first two days of the draft? Yeah, uh, is I'm not sure if this means like guys we just drafted or like who does this draft kind of make expendable per se. Um, but I'll go with. Hudson Haskin as my pick. I, I yeah. can't really expand upon it just because, I mean, I like the guy and I like a lot of our outfielders, but out of a lot of them, I just feel like maybe he has the most limited upside. 
Yeah, I just want to say, like, one of these outfielders, I, I could see them, if you're going to make a trade, and I don't know if we talked about this on the main show yesterday or if this was at one point in our six hours of just hanging out talking yesterday, but I feel like we talked about some trading, and I just feel like now is not the right time. Uh, you're going to have enough guys you can bring up to the major leagues to make this major league roster better without trading yet. Now, this offseason is a different story. I think you can pull a trigger on some big-time trades, and I think at that point, depending on what happens with Santander, Mancini, what happens at the trade deadline this year, I think you've got some guys right now that you could say, all right, if, if Kyle Stowers sticks, you bring him up at the end of the season, and Kyle Stowers is going to be a major league regular for you with Hayes and Mullins, Right? Does then Colton Kowser become expendable as the headline piece in a big time trade, you know, or is, is it Curse Dad? You know, but I think it's going to be whoever it is. I think it'd be one of those outfielders in my mind. Yeah, I'm without getting into a specific name. I do think it's going to end up being an outfielder just because you have so much depth in that area. Now, the only thing I will say is that I don't think it's Kyle Stowers. I think Stowers is in the major league outfield sometime in the next month, and he's going to be there for good. Um, but it's going to probably be someone in that mix of outfielders. And we're not going to know for a while, but it's just because you've, they've assembled so much depth in that area and they've got so many different profiles. They have the corner outfielders who can hit for a lot of power. They have the center fielders that have above average tools across the board. They even have guys, you know, that are not going to be the headliners in a possible trade, but a guy like Dante Williams, who just does a little bit of everything right and might make for an interesting reserve profile. So they've got so many different types of outfielders in the system that they could actually move one or two and still have a lot of depth in that area. Yeah, it's a great point. And honestly, even a lot of the international prospects are outfielders like Michelle Desson, Braylon Tavera, et cetera, Raylan Ramos, I know they're far away, but you know, in a few years they won't be. And, You'd made another good point that I was going to expand upon, and I'm trying to remember what it was. Oh, um, also infielders are becoming a little crowded as well. I wanted to say maybe, I don't know, but they're kind of spaced out enough where I feel like they can each get their own shot, and and it won't be as much of a problem. But do you think any of these guys, like Jordan Westberg, oh, yeah, that's what I was going to say, Gunnar Henderson, they're obviously, like John Mule said, they're so proud of the way they developed him. It's hard to see, to me, them ever – considering trading him unless it's a outside situation kind of Kyle Stowers is similar to me, or I feel like they're probably really proud of the way they developed him in a similar fashion. So I don't see them wanting to get rid of him either, but back to the point I was making about infielders. Do you see which of these guys between Norby, Prieto, Vavra, Westberg, Mayo, Henderson? I mean, it's going to get crowded. I don't know if they're all going to be long-term Orioles, who of those guys, Joey Ortiz, do you think uh, could be on the way out? I think I said last night, yeah, Preto. I think I said last night, Preto, if he's hitting, uh, package him up. And I think you sell high on Preto. And I'm saying that as I love watching him play, but I keep looking at Michael Hernandez here, to be totally honest. Like, you've got so many of those top shortstops. If you like Joey Ortiz as much as this front office seems like Joey Ortiz and you want to give him an opportunity as well, you got Vavra Norby if you want to see what they can do. I really like what Leandro Arias is doing, and it's very clear why Fangraphs has Leandro Arias so high on their top prospect list. So then now does someone, and you've got Jackson Holiday in the system now, does someone like Michael Hernandez, can you dangle him out now as an 18-year-old guy who you gave over a million dollars to last year? 
as to highlight some trade package or really beef up some trade package. I, I wouldn't be upset if he were be one of those guys to go. Yeah, could we somehow do a Prieto Haskin Santander package for uh, Pablo Lopez? I don't know. I really don't know. Yeah. <laughs> So, question here from Scott. You may have covered this, but looking at the underlying numbers, what do you think is the one thing or two things this front office has prioritized this year? I think it's game power with potential hit tool from position side and hoppy fastball with some good uh, spinning breaking balls where they can teach a changeup and make a starter out of a potential reliever. I'll go with that. I got another. I think. I mean, I feel like just going back to what John said at the beginning. I feel like John did a per. I loved his yeah. answer when he's yeah. talking about the pitching development specifically. Yeah. And just that the path that this organization is setting all these guys on, and they're not going to stray from that path right now. Whether it's how many plate appearances you get in each level, you know, we so many people question like why you look at Connor Norby's numbers. You're like, well, why would Norby get promoted right now? His numbers aren't that great in Aberdeen. Well, because he's doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing. He's meeting all those check goals, those check marks uh, down there in Aberdeen. So, you know, it's, yeah. Everything's going right right now. Yep. <laughs> Don't jinx it. Yeah, completely agree. The only thing I would add to that is relievers um, improving their fastball command and taking a frenzy secondary and making it good enough that they can at least get you three outs. Yeah, I think Logan Gillespie is going to be a good example of what they're trying to do from a lever front. You know, that's a guy they brought in and they saw a tool or two that they really liked and they're trying to refine him into a multi-inning reliever. He's having his struggles so far, but I think he's he's going to be pretty good in the long run. Any other questions before we wrap up here? I don't think so. I think that's it. It was a pretty good uh, thorough episode on day two of the draft. Yep, that was our that was it for our day two coverage of the draft. We will be back next Monday night with coverage of the Orioles minor leagues. And who knows, there might be some draft residual to talk about as well. So be sure to tune in to that next Monday night at 8 p.m. In the meantime, check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com for all the latest coverage on the Orioles, the draft, the Ravens, college sports, and more. Be sure to hop on the message board and join the discussion where you can interact with fellow readers and contributors to the site and follow us on Twitter at BSL and the birds for all the minor league highlights between now and our next episode. And thank you to everyone who has been along the ride with us over the last two days, whether you tuned in to our live show yesterday, have listened to this episode or our previous episode or both wherever you get your podcast and to the patrons who joined our Patreon exclusive on night one, of the draft. Thank you so much for sticking with us. For Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spedden. You've been listening to On the Verge.